kind of forgot there. I thought we were having a special music with a very short person. But uh, no, that was the children's microphone, so uh, sorry. Uh, let's take our Bibles and open to Psalm 13. And I don't know about you, but when I open my Bible, I find uh, my handy-dandy little bookmark here uh, that our wonderful REACH team has provided for us. And uh, making the most of every opportunity's ideas for personal evangelism. And I hope you have one of those bookmarks. Um, you know, and if you're anything like me, you can kind of do this in a little sneaky way, how to go about doing this. So, you know, um, so I kind of hoodwinked. Uh, I don't know if Frank and Sue Piatel are in here anywhere. I don't know. Are you here, Frank or Sue? They, they may... Ah, Yes. I hoodwinked Frank and Sue. Frank makes this amazing baklava. And uh, yes, so, so I, you know, I wasn't courageous enough to go up and say, Frank, could you just make me some baklava? So I went up and I said, hey, Frank, I would love to bring some baklava to my neighbors. And, uh, you know, bring them a, maybe a little Christmas uh, gifty thing and and Sue, and they said, oh, sure, right? What are they going to say to that, right, Frank? <laughs> yeah, poor guy. So, so Lord willing, uh, hopefully they're going to put some things together and give me the opportunity just to uh, get to know my neighbors a little bit. And I want to publicly say thank you to them. I, he's probably going to overrun with orders. That's not my intent here, but he does make some good baklava. Anyway, so, so maybe you can team up a little bit. Have you ever thought about teaming up? That's a good thing, and and working together. Uh, I certainly don't have the gift to make anything appetizing uh, for neighbors, uh, but Frank and Sue certainly do, and so thankful for them. But that's something we're going to attempt over the holiday season. Uh, I've heard some ladies do some teas, invite some folks over, or some gals in their neighborhood. That's always a neat time. We've done that in our household, and it's been well received by our neighbors. And uh, So just trying to think creatively, just ways to connect uh, with our unsafe friends who are uh, just to get to know them and allow them to get to know us. So uh, we want to be thinking about that. But we're in Psalm uh, 13 this morning, and what I'd like to do is go ahead and, and read before us here. As you know, Pastor Tim, when he's out from the pulpit, he's asked us to cover different psalms, and uh, it's been a joy and delight. And uh, I think we can agree together that we love the psalms. Uh, for all kinds of reasons, and I bet if I were to ask for a raise of hands, how many of you are frequently finding yourself reading a psalm for encouragement and, and edification? Yeah, Gabby's raising her hand. I think all of us would, would agree to that. And there's a reason for that, and we'll uh, allude to that as we talk a little bit here and as we get into the message. Um, so let's take a look at Psalm 13 together here. We'll read it, and then we'll have a word of prayer and then we'll get into what the Lord has for us this morning. How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have overcome him, lest my enemies rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in thy loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
Let's bow for a word of prayer here together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Bible. Uh, we thank you that uh, this objective truth deposit is the most precious aspect of your revelation to us. We know that Jesus was a one-for-one -one revelation of all that you are, and we thank you for that. But Lord, until he comes uh, back again to rule and reign, uh, the most precious treasure we have that we actually hold in our hands is the Bible, because it it teaches us authoritatively uh, who Jesus is and what he has done. And it's infallible and inerrant. Uh, it is our sole rule of faith and practice. And it, it is by it and through it that the church comes to be of the same mind. Um, it's a meta-narrative, yes, but it's a meta-narrative of, of supernatural origination. And so it is accurate as it narrates all of life and every part of our life. So Lord, keep us from deconstructing it. Keep us from of, for, uh, uh, sort of ignoring it. Lord, help us to treasure it and to love it. And we thank you that as we open its pages, we come to such emotively charged passages as Psalm 13. And, and Lord, our hearts at times reflect this level of emotion. We thank you that the Spirit of God is, a, is not afraid to go with us into those depths. And uh, he is there. And the God of heaven that we have is a very personal, loving God. And we rejoice in all that you are. So as we uh, uh, apply our thinking to the truth this morning, help us to do our part, Lord. Help us to stave off tiredness, to fight off falling asleep. Uh, to work hard at following uh, what's being said from the Word of God this morning. And help us to get what you want for us, to arm our hearts and minds with truth. We think of our pastor and his family as they're away from us. We pray that you would encourage them, bring them back here safely, and uh, may they enjoy rich fellowship together as a family. Uh, so, Lord, we commend our time to you. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. So just by way of introduction, the first thing that sort of confronts you with this psalm is the idea of from sorrow to song. You have such great sorrow in the first expression, the first stanza there in verses 1 through 4. And by the last stanza in verse number 6, we have singing going on and trusting. So we have this this to the depth of emotion, uh, uh, righted and stabilized in, into an emotive uh, reality that God longs for every believer to progressively enjoy in their life. And we're going to see that. So what we want to understand this morning, well, what is the difference? Or, or what is the way from one emotion, emotional extreme to the next? Uh, emotions are uh, the high definition of life. Uh, they are sort of the, uh, the, the, the movie reel of life. Everything we see, we're, we're immediately kind of taking it in, and emotions are the initial response, and, and, uh, and what we do and how we handle that is, is really critical, and the God of heaven wants to teach us how to handle that. He wants us to understand that emotions are not reality. 
that there is only one thing that is real in all of this universe, and that is the things that correspond to the truth of the Word of God. This is reality. Now, to say that emotions aren't real is not what I mean. What I mean to say is often the interpretation of those emotions need to be challenged and need to be reworked through the truth claims of the Word of God. God is the definition of all that is real, and he's communicated that to us in his Word. So we have a very faithful witness about reality. We have a very faithful witness about how we come to know that reality. Well, we have to read English. Thankfully, we can. We, we have to appreciate human language uh, and, and, and interpret according to the laws of human language. And what a joy that in this country we have, we have uh, in God's good providence, everybody should learn to read and hopefully does, right, by mandate. We're thankful for that. And the primary reason for that, we would, I would argue, is so that you can have your conscience informed by the truth claims of the Word of God. And we also have the freedom to do that. What a, what a joy. And so as so we come to try to understand this, this emotional sort of uh, a wave and, 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 and challenge, uh, we look to the Word of God to have those emotions categorized, uh, captured, if you will, uh, put on a leash if necessary, and, uh, and then to be able to move forward in a way that God longs for us to move forward. So what is the difference? Psalm 12 is the reflection of the psalmist when he feels alone and abandoned, alone and abandoned by his godly friends. So if we looked at Psalm 12, we would see that. In verse number one, Lord, help Lord for what? The godly man ceases. So chapter 12 is about the abandonment of the psalmist by godly friends for whatever reason. And he deals with that issue. Psalm 13 seems to plummet even further. Psalm 13 plummets to deeper depths as the psalmist reflects on feelings of abandonment by God himself. What do I do then? It's one thing to be abandoned by godly friends and feeling that way. It's a whole other issue to feel like I'm being abandoned by God himself. So what seems to be the inducement to such feelings, as we see in Psalm 13, is not so much the fact of trial, but what we note in this particular psalm is that suffering in difficulty, or the, it's not so much the fact of suffering in difficulty, but it's the length in which suffering and difficulty must be endured. It is in long-term requirements of perseverance and faith and repentance. It's in those moments, it's in that long-term marathon of trust that the temptation comes and, and, and the voice ensues from the heart, God, you have abandoned me. And the psalmist says what we're afraid to say. And, but we're so thankful he says it because it weighs so heavily on our hearts. So it's the length. It's the length that's so challenging. Some of you are being called of God 
to walk through trials that are just long. And there is no relief in sight. Your life is marked this way. And in moments, your heart is echoing the heart of the psalmist right here. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is critical. I mean, this, these feelings go right to the question of theology, high theology proper. Is God a God who abandons? Human experience demands a response to that. And anybody who's truly born again and truly a thoughtful believer understands this and will in their life wrestle with it. And it's a good thing. Because if you're truly born again, you'll come out where David comes out. And you'll learn the lessons that God has for us to learn. So here's my proposition this morning. God's character and work, his character and work, and here's the issue, here's where we apprehend it, confessed in prayer. sustains during the long, drawn-out periods of suffering. God's character and work confessed in deep, heartfelt prayer sustains in the long, drawn-out periods of suffering. Three words this morning we're going to look at will serve to organize our thoughts. They're not necessarily words from the text, but I think they're words that summarize uh, at least as I've studied this passage of Scripture, what God has laid on my heart. The first word is perplexity. If you're, if you're writing notes, you want to write that word down, perplexity, perplexity. The second word you want to write down is prayer, perplexity and prayer. And that's a blessing, right? They both start with P. However, I'm about ready to disappoint. Uh, the third word is release. Uh, maybe somebody could come up with a good word. That starts with P, that means release, but I couldn't. Um, release, or maybe we could have used the word perseverance. There it is. Uh, should have used that. Uh, but first of all, let's take a look at the first two verses. How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me for wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? This is perplexity. This is a perplexity of a born-again man who, by the way, the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. So if you are a people after God's own heart, you can expect to be found here at some point in time in your life. What is the occasion? Well, we understand from verse number two, how long shall I take counsel in my heart, having sorrow in my heart all the day, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? This is the occasion. Sorrow at the very core of our being. Because our enemy, and we'll talk a little bit about this, what David means, is exalted over David himself. This is something that, that's in his heart. It's not just mere... Uh, an issue of the mind, the intellect. These are emotions that are being gathered up by the mind. 
that are causing the heart to be filled with sorrow. And here's how the immaterial part of man works. So the occasion is the sorrow of heart as a result of an enemy's exaltation. Uh, this, this stanza, verses 1 and 2, gives us the particular context, and we've already referred to it. It is the length of suffering that's troubling. It's the length of suffering that's difficult. One commentator put it this way, it is not the sharpest, but the longest trials that we are most in danger of fainting. Fainting in faith, succumbing to the thoughts of the immaterial part of our heart. We have here four times the question, how long is rehearsed? It is as though the psalmist is crying out in the depth of a deep canyon, and all he can hear is the echo of his own voice. Have you ever felt that way? I've been in Bryce Canyon, and I've shouted out. And all I heard was the empty echo of my own voice. There was no reassuring voice saying, come this way. <laughs> you know, as you're looking around, where in the world do I go? No. The shout itself, my voice itself, almost magnified the confusion, if it did anything. Not only is sorrow of his heart plaguing him over a long period of time, but look at verse 2. We have another beautiful poetic uh, uh, statement that's trying to help us understand what he's going through. He says, having sorrow in my heart all the day. What does this add? So not only is the sorrow of his heart plaguing him for over a long period of time, verse 2, but it adds that it persists all day. What's he pointing out here? Well, it, it's not only long in quantity over a span of time, but its quality in any given day is equally unrelenting. You see what's going on here? So this isn't sort of a punctuated long-term issue. It certainly has that, but in every single day, it's with us. Never stops. The quality of it is unrelenting. It is these kinds of challenges that God allows into our life that really presses us to the question of, is God a God who abandons? Persists all day long. The psalmist is left to conclude that. And what does he say? He says... Um, um, wilt thou what? Verse number one. The, uh, God, you must have forgotten me. Here's the one that I've, I've felt before. How long will you hide your face from me? God's embarrassed of me. God, have you forgotten me? God, are you embarrassed by me? Verse 3, how long will I take counsel in my own soul? God, I'm left alone to my own counsel. I'm all by myself, aren't I? You know, many commentators argue that the historic occasion for this psalm and others like it is the absolute exhaustion that David felt as he ran for his life from King Saul. Best as we can tell, this was a reality in David's life 
that lasted year, at least a year, if not years, plural. And many of the choices he made to avoid Saul reflect a sense of desperation. Remember how he got away from Saul sometimes? Well, one time, he goes hiding in caves. This is the next theocratic ruler of the theocratic kingdom. He's hiding in caves. I'm not saying that was wrong, that even wasn't, that that wasn't God's will. But what I am saying, that's desperation. And if that's not desperate enough, there's a time when he retreats into the hands of the Philistines. Remember, the Philistine is the home country of Goliath, who, oh, by the way, David just, as a child, killed their champion and cut off his head. And the sword of Goliath is in the temple of God, or the tabernacle, temple, tabernacle, I think it's tabernacle still. He goes to them for refuge. How desperate is that? That's pretty desperate. And if that wasn't bad enough, as he's there, what does he have to do? He feigns madness. Let's turn to, so I gotta, you got to listen to this. 1 Samuel, I think it's 1 Samuel 21. Verse 10, then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. This is 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. Gath is one of the, the, the Pentap, I think there's five cities in Philistia. This is one of those. He's the king there. But the servants of Achish said to him, the king, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing? Of this one as they dance, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, and you can put in parentheses, Philistines. <laughs> David took these words to what? And he greatly what? So what does he do? He plummets to the depth of indignity. He disguises his sanity before them and acts insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let saliva run down into his beard. God, I feel like I'm all alone. You've forgotten me? You're embarrassed of me, maybe? And I'm left to my own counsel. You ever felt like that? The man after God's own heart sure did. He sure did. You know, this is why we love David. We find connection with David. Not in the precise detail, but certainly in kind. In David, we find great relief to know that life more abundantly or living victoriously, as is popularly understood, is not the experience of a man or woman after God's own heart. We all just breathe the sigh of relief. Now, we do know that Jesus says, I've come to give life more abundantly and free, right? But we need to, that that means something in the context. Remember what they did to Jesus? Yeah. Eternal life, the joy of eternal life is the interior part of a man or woman. 
Not as it's so popularly understood in all the material things that I have and get. David's lips give expression to the confusing, can I say this, depression that wrestles with our minds. Depression grips and leaves what seems to be the only conclusions possible. We fear to say the words that we feel or think. God's word brings great comfort, however. It is the master of the soul of men. Through Holy Spirit inspiration, and never forget that, through Holy Spirit inspiration, David says what we are afraid to say. And God can handle it. <laughs> Hearing him helps us sort through the morass of feelings when suffering is so long. What three conclusions plague your mind when suffering or inequity is long and drawn out in your life? Of the three thoughts David shares, two in particular plague me, I've shared that with you. God is ashamed of me and has left me to my own devices. That's a scary place to feel like you are. So David confirms that experience is real. Can I say that? Emotions are real. He never gives us reason to question that. He confirms the reality of deep and sometimes dark questions that are the result of deep and dark feelings specifically concerning God, that long, drawn-out suffering begs in our life. However, however, and we can praise God for the however, however, David runs to the place where God effectively adjusts the mind and heart. That place is the place of prayer. Unless we miss the profundity of it. Because when the children were, were, were taught to pray... And then, and then Jesus gives us a model prayer. And, and so we think this is something that's childish. And, and in terms of, of, of its help, is very limited and inconsequential. David says, through the centuries, there could be nothing closer to the truth if that's what you believe about prayer. Prayer is a robust place. It is the singular place that all of the Psalms refer us to. So we're not talking, now I lay me down to sleep. How's that go? I can't remember the rest of it. You know what it is. We're talking about Gethsemane level at this point. Not that we'll ever summit those heights. Uh, but Jesus himself taught us where feelings of abandonment by the God of heaven are dealt with. And if I could put a point on the tip of that spear, Jesus taught us it was finally and fully in these words, not my will, but your will be done. That's it. That's it. It's not fatalism. Fatalism is negative. Fatalism sees an impersonal being, chance ruling this universe. No, this is resignation. This is a full and robust understanding that there is a very personal being running this universe. He's very loving. And he is going to press us to his loving purpose and design. And he's with us all the way. 
This is true truth. And it is in prayer that we regrip that, that God adjusts our mind to it. We have the joy of confessing it as we walk through these very difficult things. What do we learn about prayer here in verses 3 and 4? First of all, we see it's humble. These certainly are imperatives, consider and answer me, but these are imperatives of entreaty. This is the imperative of the vassal going to the Lord with no other hope, with no other help, there is none other, and commanding the Lord for help. Please consider. It's humble. It's humble. But it's also bold. It says, answer me. <laughs> so you have this beautiful interplay between humility and boldness. And aren't we, in fact, commanded to come before God, now that we have the full, robust information, the revelation of the person of Jesus as our intercessor, how much more should we come boldly and to grip the throne of what? Grace. That's what we grip. And we do so boldly. He prays for enlightenment. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep here. Um, this Hebrew word can be translated all kinds of ways. Not all kinds of ways, that's overstating it. Uh, there are, uh, at times, it's used as a metaphor of God giving moral enlightenment. It can mean that. We see that in Proverbs or Psalm 19.8. It can literally be asking God to give literal eyesight to all people, Proverbs 29.13. It can mean God giving the eyes of encouragement to his people. Encouragement, Ezra 9.8. But here, uh, as, as uh, probably in your translation, it, it's sleeping the sleep of death. Essentially, David is asking God to keep him alive. Keep me alive. And given the backdrop of the occasion of the psalm, the probability of it, David's praying for his own life. The alternative for David was death. David's concern was for the testimony of Jehovah. Why was David so concerned that he would die? Well, because David knew it was not the time for him to die. He had the Davidic covenant. He knew that he was supposed to ascend to the throne, that Jehovah, who, by the way, his name means, I keep my promises, right? had promised him this. So David is essentially arguing with God, saying, God, you've got to do this. You've got to consider this, because if you don't, you're going to be an embarrassment to the Gentiles. Your word concerning me will be what people will use to mock you, because everybody knows this. Everybody in the nation of Israel knows this, and a lot of the Gentile, uh, the Gentile nations knew this as well. So what, what we want to do is not get caught up so much in, in the specifics of what David said, but we want to get caught up in the example of what he's doing. He is taking God's word concerning him, and he is confessing it back to God as the rationale and reason for revisiting David and saving his life. Are you with me? It's the method. And we want to Rest heavily on that method. 
So the context for David was the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant. David's enemies were God's enemies. David's adversary was God's adversary. Remember, God is the theocratic king. David and Saul, etc., are the administrators. To obey God is prosperous. To disobey God, you'll have trouble. David's death would eliminate any kind of testimony he would have for Jehovah. This is David's argument to God for deliverance. This was God's program. It was unthinkable that any earthly influence could overcome God's plan or shake God in any way. The Davidic covenant necessitated David's understanding of this close identity with God. This was not simply David's issue. This was the Lord's issue that David was bringing before God. This is powerful prayer. This is prayer just marshalling up what God had already said. And said, God, this is what is whatsoever things are true. So you need to enlighten my eyes. You need to keep me alive here. As I spittle is drooling down my beard and I'm scratching on the door and I'm acting like a madman. Feeling like I've been left to my own design and desires. Where are you? He has confidence that he never flags in his word. That's the key. It's the word that is... The, 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 the point of strength and confidence for David. It's the Word. He knows God through the Word, the Davidic covenant, and God cannot lie. So in our context then, how are we to do this, right? I mean, that's what you're sitting there thinking. Okay, pastor, I get all that. Well, in our context, believers who are paralyzed by the faithless feeling of abandonment by God and darkening depression obviously are no good when it comes to gospel advancement. David took up God's word concerning him. We, too, take up God's word concerning us as we battle the faithless feelings of abandonment that press upon our thinking when suffering moves from days into weeks and from weeks into months and from months into years. critical lesson that David teaches us in this psalm is that it is not hoping that people are praying for you, other people, or even that the pastor is praying for you. One of the critical lessons we see here is these deep, dark thoughts concerning the nature of God and His presence is a battle that each and every one of you must get on your knees and battle out. I can't wage this battle for you, friend. This is something that you are going to have to do on your own. I believe that's one of the things David's teaching here. The second thing, um, we've already seen that when we pray, in the, even in our age dispensation, it's the prayer of faith. It's the prayer that combines humility and boldness. And our first concern as we go into prayer is the testimony of the Lord and the prayer of faith rests in what God has already revealed concerning each of us. There was already clear revelation of what would be true of David. What we need to grapple with is what God has already said is true of us. So you're ready to write these down. What has God already said of us? Well, Romans chapter 5. We're to exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proving character, and proving character, hope. 
and hope does not disappoint. And, and I know you're out there thinking right now, you're saying, oh, pastor, I would much rather have the word of God concerning David <laughs> than that word concerning me, right? I mean, we all wish we could be the king, <laughs> and we would be the king, and we could throw that back up in God's heart. But we don't have that word concerning us. What we do have is a word concerning us that you and I, we must confess the revealed value of trials. That's what we must do. This is already God's word concerning you. He says it in Romans 5. And if you want the particulars, it's there in Romans 5. There's a process that God in his gracious goodness is pushing you, putting us through. So the value of trials. We need to confess that. Number two, we need to confess the revealed goal and purpose of trials. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are, are, uh, who are in any affliction with the comfort with which, we've been, which ourselves are comforted by God. So as we walk through this trial, we need to not only confess the value of what we're going through in prayer, we need to confess the goal and purpose of it. Lord, I understand that you want me to pursue comfort, particularly comfort from the Word of God here, and I believe that the goal and purpose, at least one of them, is so that I can turn around and give comfort to somebody with the comfort I've been comforted with. So Lord, help me to learn scripturally, biblically, what that comfort is, and help me to take it right here so that I will never forget it. Let me set it in contrast against my emotional makeup that you've abandoned me. No, help me to understand you are personally walking with me and teaching me right now so that I can be profitable, potentially. Thirdly, we have to confess the revealed potential that each trial holds. 2 Corinthians verse 12 through 9. This is Paul. They're praying, begging God. This is Paul. Is there a more spiritual person than Paul? Not that I know of. And Paul said this, and he said to me, this is God or Jesus Christ speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. So I'm going to keep you weak. But in your weakness, I want you to think a lot about my grace. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will rather boast about my weakness. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying, you know what? Yes, this has been a long trial, and as far as I can tell, it's going to continue. But I'll tell you what, in this weakened condition, I've just become more and more thankful that the king is coming that it's going to be okay. <laughs> Jesus is fashioning me for eternity. That I have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the power may go to God. I mean, all these things. You can think of the verses. This is the word of God concerning you. In times of trial, when you think God has abandoned you, this is what you rehearse. You don't get to rehearse David saying, hey, I'm supposed to be king. What's going on here? <laughs> you know? <laughs> We say, hey, okay, yeah, all right. So here's the purpose of trials. Here's the goal. 
Here's the blue dot on the horizon. And here's the potential. You may never deliver, but there's plenty of grace available. God and I confess these things. So the structure of the psalm in Hebrew indicates that the perplexity of the first stanza begins to slow and settle through the second stanza as David commits to prayer. And it finally settles in the third when David takes up the shield of faith with which uh, can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. In prayer, David turns to right his thinking and therefore settle his faithless doubting. It is in the prayer offered by faith, James 5, 15, that David finds release from doubt and the paralysis of depression and fear. The best combatant for feelings of abandonment about depression, if you took my Systematic Theology 1 course, you would tell me who is the best person to face the, the, the fearful doubts of abandonment and depression? Well, it's the best theologian. It's the best theologian. Theology is vigorously practical. It is the weapon of choice for David wielded in prayer and confession to God. And there, my friends, there, my friends, if you are willing to pick up the weapon of prayer and wield it with, with the Word of God in confession, I confess these things to be true, God. Help my soul to adjust to you. God, you don't need to adjust to me. I need to adjust to you. And here are three realities that you've told me. And oh God, help me rest, help me to, in faith, have Paul's view of the potential of this reality in my life. And help me to apprehend the grace that's already available. So the, the release, verses 5 through 6. I spoke on this a little bit uh, in, in the young marrieds. Talk about the limitations of science. Science cannot make universal statements. Uh, they're bound by the limitations of being flat-out human. They are, they're not everlasting, and they can't be everywhere present in the fullness of their being all the time to be able to make a universal statement. Uh, however, <laughs> there is one who can. Who can absolutely be everywhere present in the fullness of his being all the time with no end and no beginning. So he can make universal statements, my friend, that are dependable if you want them. If you don't want them, I get it. It's hard to get there. It's a process. It's growing. It's progress. But they're there. And they're available. By faith, David confesses God's loving loyalty. I have trusted. Not that you're going to fix all my circumstances. Not that it's all, you know. But I've trusted your loving, your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. David confesses God's loving loyalty. There is one trustworthy truth in this universe that will always be applicable regardless of your circumstances. And that is this, that God is absolutely loyal in his love to you for all eternity. Period. Don't put a comma there. That's a universal statement if you're a believer. And it's the faithless heart that loves to put little commas there. It's the devil who comes in and drops a little comma there. Yeah, but there are no commas there. God works on us. So you know why I shared this? So, so that when we get to heaven, we get it, you know? I mean, it would be very embarrassing in you, if you go to heaven and you think, you know, it's God's loving kindness really eternal. 
You know, that, that's going to be like so, like the angels are going to go, what? You know, God is, is creating you for glory, my friends. You've got to start getting used to that. Amen. All right? You're, you're going you're, you're, yeah, you're to have to sit down across from an angel one day, maybe, and sup. <laughs> you know? And you're going to have to hold your own. They just are sitting there. You know, they're not eating. They're just... You know, and they're just sitting there watching you going, what in the world are you doing here? And you're going to say, amen, Jesus, man, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I am convinced. And what dragged me through my sinful, depraved condition was God's loving loyalty. I learned to put a period there, and I kept on persevering. Oh, man. I mean, the gospel does that? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Too bad, so sad, you don't get it. And we do, you know. And we go on and on like that. But folks, this is what God's trying to do. By faith, David rejoices in the salvation of God. There's one sure source of hope, one sure source of hope in this universe that will always be applicable regardless of circumstances, and that is God's salvation, period. You can try to fly your hope in any other place you want, but know this, as you fly them there, you will be left with no other conclusion at times that God has abandoned me. But if you pigeonhole that thing called hope, which is a very square peg, it only fits in one square hole, and that's the eternal salvation of God. Eternal, eternal. By faith, David sings. He sings, we see here in the last verse. He sings of the history of God's bounty. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and you will discover what God has done. I probably, you know, didn't sing that quite right. But in all those simple child <laughs> Sunday school songs that we learned, there is profound truth. And the problem is we think as we get older in the Lord that there must be some other truth that's top secret that I haven't gotten yet. And all Jesus says, no, what you, you really, everything you need to know you've got in kindergarten. <laughs> you really did. That moment you were born again, and your task is to really just play that out in your life. Make it happen by God's grace. Be thankful. Sing. There is one, you want an inspiration for song? There's one inspiration for song in this universe, and that will, that will always be applicable regardless of circumstances. And that is the history of God's bounty in your life and in the history of salvation for all of mankind. Believer, know this, that God's character and work confessed in prayer sustains during long, drawn-out periods of suffering. There's nothing like our marriages our children, our work experience, at times our church experience, health, these can all be long, drawn-out occasions for suffering in our life. Just know that the long, drawn-out nature of that suffering, it is not God's intention for you to come to the conclusion that he has abandoned you. It is his intention that you learn the value of prayer, 
of Gethsemane-like prayer and going there to confess the things that God has already says is true and getting that down is so good. All the things we learned when we were first born again. This is his intention. He's preparing you to sit and eat together in his presence at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You don't want to be adult when you're sitting there. That's what he's doing. And he's doing it marvelously, and he's doing it with omniscience, omnipotence, and to try to fight against that, it's going to be tough. Like David, it is high time to pray, to pray humbly, yet boldly, to rehearse in prayer what God has said concerning the value, goal, and purpose, and even the potential for our suffering. Then to step back and tell God how special he is, to confess the eternal trustworthy truth, source of hope and inspiration for song that is always, always available, found in the very God of heaven exclusively. You know, if you don't know God as your personal Lord and Savior this morning, this stuff is probably like, whoa, that guy's nuts, you know? And, and you know, we are foolish. In other words, in the sense that you know, reality for us is defined by the Word of God. But I think one thing you can't deny if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you cannot deny how painfully honest believers are in their relationship with God. And in Jesus Christ, there is nothing that we cannot, in His grace and with His Word in front of us, that we cannot progressively become more like Jesus. We're not afraid to answer the questions. God's Word teaches us to do it, understand God's design. So if you are here without Jesus Christ, my friend, the internal part of your being, as you go through long, drawn-out moments of suffering, I don't know where you pull the ability to get up and get out of bed in the morning. I'm telling you, Jesus is it. Amen. Amen. He says, come unto me. All you who are labored and heavy laden. He's not talking about, you know, being in the union and having to go to work in the union and labor hard. He's talking about the immaterial part of who you are, your personhood, your personality, who you are. It's there that you are ripped to shreds. You have been victimized by other people's sin. You have sinned yourself and you are only complicating things as you go on in life continuing to complicate them because you have no source of truth to pull from. Jesus says, I am it. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's true truth. Amen. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the immaterial part of your heart, ease and lightness comes through clarity of what, in fact, is going on here. And Jesus Christ, through the Word of God, teaches us what that reality is. And the hope is amazing. So we would commend Jesus to you. Uh, he is, as the psalmist, or as the hymn writer puts it, fairest Lord Jesus. There's nobody fairer when it comes to the immaterial part of your heart. You can deposit your own self-centered thinking there. You can deposit the thinking of your boss, the thinking of your wife, the thinking of your children. Whatever you want to deposit there, it's only going to be until Jesus is there exclusively with no rival, it's going to be a confusing life.
All right, let's pray.